On this episode of the London Lyceum, you all are in for a treat. We've got Dr. Matthew Bingham, who's joining us on the Hanover House, alongside Garrett Walden and Jake Stone, in addition to the usual suspects, me and Brandon Askew. And I think you're really going to enjoy this because we cover some really cool topics like what makes a good historian, what makes a good Baptist historian, how can one be formed into a good historian? Are there practices or habits that they need? What areas of Baptist research are really under-researched and need more attention? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about thinking seriously, we don't mean serious as in stuffy or old or curmudgeonly. We think of different virtues like curiosity, critical thinking, cheerful confessionalism, and charity. So we don't want to just be one of those. We don't want to be just a charitable kind bunch. We also want to be cheerfully confessing uh, what we find in the Second London Confession of Faith or more broadly what we'd like to see as what's held in common by things like the Anglican Formularies, the Second London Confession, the Westminster Confession, and other traditional reform documents that we think are sound summaries of the faith once delivered to all the saints. So we want to do all these things. We want to try to hold all these things in tension. We also want to think critically and to be promoting serious thinking in that way. So all of those things together is what we try to do here at the London Lyceum. And now this is a special uh, Hanover House edition because we've got Dr. Matthew Bingham with us. Uh, Dr. Bingham is at Oak Hill College, but he's also one of our fellows, and I think he's really one of the foremost Baptist historians alive today. So if you're not familiar with Dr. Bingham, you need to become familiar with him because he's not only is he brilliant, but he is a tremendous writer. So reading his material is not dry. It's not drab. It's not, it, it almost like makes your eyes glide along. You just enjoy reading it. It's so good. So if you haven't read his Orthodox Radicals, I encourage you to get a copy of it. Find a way to get a copy of it. If that means you contact your library because it's, it's a little bit out of your price range and have them purchase it so you can borrow it and read it. Do that. I highly, highly, highly commend it. And then also, it's not just a scholarship, but it's his own personality that is just tremendous. So he really has a heart for the church. He's been a pastor. So he models both of these things really, really well of both scholarship and pastoral sensitivity. So this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about what it means and what it looks like to become a good historian, as well as especially a Baptist historian. So this is going to be fun. Uh, before we start, Dr. Bingham, can you just give me a quick background on where you're at right now, what you're doing right now, and then maybe what was did you find most interesting in your in your Baptist history study? So you, you did a lot of work uh, at Queens, you, you studying and researching. Like, wh- What drew you to Baptist history, or what, what was the most interesting aspect of what you studied? Yeah, thanks, Jordan, and it's really great to be here. Pleasure to be with you guys. Um, Yeah, so I teach church history and systematic theology at Oak Hill College, which is in London in the UK, Um, originally from the United States, from Los Angeles. Uh, Before coming to Oak Hill, I was a pastor uh, in the United States and um, then briefly also in the UK and Northern Ireland. And uh, in terms of my research interests, 
I'm interested in uh, early modern British religious history. I'm interested in Puritanism, um, and especially I'm interested in uh, early English Baptists. And um, you know, how did I how did I get into that? Um, in terms of that particular research interest, it really grew out of um, being a pastor in a in a Baptist church, in a Reformed Baptist church. And um, what I found was that um, we would uh, subscribe to the 1689 London Baptist Confession. We'd make that a part of our church's identity. Uh, we'd talk about it in our new members' classes. We'd try to locate our church sort of on the map and say, okay, here's where we fit in. And um, I, I found, among other things that sort of pushed me in this direction, I, I just found that sometimes people would ask, you know, new members would ask pretty basic, pretty reasonable questions when we bring up the 1689, like just, oh, who were these guys who signed this? And why did they write this? And tell us a little bit about the background. And and I actually found myself um, you know, sort of embarrassingly ignorant. You know, you say you're the pastor of the church and this is what we all are on board with. And then you know, I just found some real big gaps in my own knowledge. And I went looking for answers. And well, I found... Um, a lot of great resources out there. I, I still felt like, wow, there's 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 more digging to be done. Uh, so that led me into the kind of academic study of these things and led to uh, my dissertation, which uh, became in sort of lightly edited form, uh, the book you mentioned, Orthodox Radicals. We wanted to talk with you today just about being a historian. So I guess the first question we can ask is just a very simple one. Um, you can go into much as much detail as you'd like here. Um, but what do you, what would you say makes a good historian? Yes, yeah, great question. Um, there's lots of things we could say, I think, to that. I think there's lots of um, virtues and, and uh, attributes that, that a sort of ideal historian would possess. But maybe a way to kick it off would be um, trying to wrap our heads around, you know, what is an historian versus what is someone who just sort of uh, takes an interest in in the past? Is there a distinction to be drawn there? And I, I think there is. I think there are. Um, lot, I think all of us take an interest in the in the past to some degree, and yeah, I think if we're talking about history in a sort of critical sense, we're, we're talking about something a little bit more. Um, I think about. You know, I think about folks who immerse themselves in a in a period, in a like you'll see uh, folks who are interested. I, I read a book recently about uh, military reenactors, for example. You know, and guys will go out and reenact the Battle of Gettysburg or whatever. And it was really fascinating to me because some of these guys get really deep into the kind of weeds in terms of all right, what kind of cloth were their uniforms made of, and what were the buttons, and how do I how do I get the buttons to look right and this what did they eat and they, they get really interested in the details and who was at this battle and this that and the other and that that's all great in no way shape or form uh do i have any criticisms there however um is that the same as as being a sort of good historian and and i i think actually when we're talking about history as a discipline we're talking about taking it another step so it's not just about sort of um assembling all these facts about the past, but it's actually what it, what do you do with them, right? We need the facts, but the facts are sort of like the the ingredients. And um, a historian is somebody who's going to take them all and do something with it. He's the chef who's going to go in and actually cook up something um, that either 
tastes good or tastes bad, but he's, he's doing something with that, those ingredients. And so um, that's, that's where I see the historian's task starting. It's, it's, yeah, we're taking an interest in the past, but it's a, uh, it's a critical interpretation of the past. It's uh, when you think about all the available facts at your disposal, all the available sources, you've got to sift through them. And out of all the things you could look at and pull out and talk about and think about, you're going to take some of those and then put them into some sort of interpretive framework and come up with uh, a thesis, an argument, an analysis. So an historian then is a, a critical interpreter of the past who is, is trying to analyze and explain uh, change over time. I've got a question about that. Um, so when I, would you say that modern or contemporary history writers are basically by definition doing revisionist history uh, in the sense of they're revising or, uh, I don't know, developing what has already been interpreted and said with maybe new information or a new interpretation of it. For me, when I hear the word revisionist history, it has mostly a negative connotation as basically just like, I don't know, imposing whatever you want the past to mean onto the past. Um, but I've recently heard people talk about revisionist history in a more positive way and basically that it's inevitable. Any kind of history writing is revisionist in a way. What, what do you think about that? Or would you use that term for yourself or for history writing? Yeah, um, you do hear that. And, you know, I, I think we want to distinguish between the way people sometimes employ that term, the way you hear it used, the connotations that attach to it, and maybe the idea behind it and particularly the way I think you're, you're sort of developing it, you know, often it's attached to, um, you know, a, a new book, a new article comes out and really tries to cast things in a, in a very different light. So historians have always said, oh, we all know X and someone comes along and says actually not X. And that can sometimes be, um, often when you get that revisionist label attached, it's because of something quite provocative, quite contested, that sort of thing. And so, um, yeah, you know, sometimes that sort of thing uh, attaches, gets a negative sense because people are seen as, oh, oh like revisionist historian, he has an axe to grind. He's just pushing this, this narrative or whatever. Um, but, you know, th there is a sense in which anyone who comes to the study of history uh, is, is going to be taking a revisionist approach in the sense that uh, if you're just going to republish something that is already out there, what, what's the point? You're, you're trying to add to a conversation. That's another way, I think, actually, that we might distinguish between a, a sort of historian and someone who's just sort of an antiquarian or just interested in the past. Again, not, not to disparage that. That's fine if, if, if one is interested in, in the past for the past's sake. But historians are advancing a conversation that's already in progress. And so part of contributing to a conversation means... You're going to say something uh, new, something that hasn't been said. You're going to say it in a different way. You're going to add to the conversation. And if you're not adding to it, um, what are you doing? Uh, so, you know, in that sense, then, I hear what you're saying when you say, you know, might all history be considered revisionist in some way? Um, you know, the other way that that can work, of course, is if you're, if you're finding, you know, genuinely new source material that people have not yet engaged with, then you don't necessarily need to be um, 
hypercritical of other historians, you could be saying, hey, here's a new source that actually amplifies an existing narrative, um, further evidence for the position X or Y. Um, so it's not, it's not all antagonistic, but there's definitely that dynamic in play. Maybe we can narrow the scope now to um, Baptist history, since that's your area of expertise. So I have, this is kind of a two-part question. I want to ask you what you think makes a good Baptist historian, but then also, in your experience, is there anything that you would say is unique about studying um, or studying Baptist history in relation to maybe other traditions in church history, whether that be um, the source material or, or anything else that that might make it uniquely challenging uh, in comparison in comparison to other traditions uh, in the church? Yeah. Um, in terms of what, if we're going to ask what makes a good Baptist historian, uh, I guess it, you know, it depends what, how, how are we talking there? What do we mean by that? And um, there is particularly with not not just Baptist history, but but all sort of denominational history, there is this older tradition going back to 18th century, 19th century, uh, where you find um, people writing in this really open, blatantly partisan denominational way. And and it's it's not like they're trying to trick anybody. They just come right out and say, um, you know, I'm I'm writing uh, to sort of vindicate um the Baptist cause and, and this, that, or the other. And, and I don't think that's just a Baptist thing, but I do think you see it, especially with some of the Baptist historians, because there's a sense, and, and probably not totally unwarranted, they have a sense that other historians have not always treated uh, Baptists fairly, have not given them the attention that they deserved, have overlooked them, have distorted uh, what they contributed, etc. And so you'll often, you know, they write with this sort of open sense of I'm going to set the record straight and and vindicate the Baptist cause. So if if that's what we're talking about in terms of being a, a Baptist historian, um, you know, I, I think that's something that most of us have moved away from. Um, again, not just Baptist, but but everybody. I think histor- history generally is now uh, historians strive much more towards a sort of objective posture and trying to sift through the facts in as fair a way as they can. Um, so I wouldn't embrace that. On the other hand, though, you know, there's a kind of, there'd be a minimalist answer to that question as well. You know, what makes a good Baptist historian? One might say, well, you know, my being a Baptist means absolutely nothing to to my work. And I'd, I'd want to eschew that as well, because I think there are all sorts of ways in which uh, who we are as individuals impinges and impacts the, the work that we do, including the historical work. Um, what would some of those things be? I think there's there's lots of ways that, that our subjectivity, whether we're Baptists or Presbyterians or atheists or whatever we might be, affects us. Um, it affects us in terms of our selection of topics in the first place. You know, the things that interest me are going to be affected by who who I am and and the things that jump out at me is, yeah, that, that's worthiest. I mean, I already shared about how um, some of my interest in getting into the academic study of early English Baptists grew out of my ministry and my being a pastor and, and trying to talk to people about, you know, what our church was all about and how we understood ourselves. So there's that. Um, I think it also can affect our sensitivity to various issues. You know, um, I don't mean sensitivity in terms of being offended by this or by that, but I mean, what 
what things do I notice when I come to the history of the 17th century in England, for example, what are the things that stand out to me as interesting? And obviously that's going to be affected by previous reading I've done, uh, where I am, who I am, all of these things shape us. Um, our understanding, the understanding that we bring, you know, again, the historian is, is sort of sifting through all of these source materials and, you know, you bring to it a, a set of facts, background knowledge, previous education that's going to allow you to notice certain things and, and put them into conversation and, and connection with other things, you know. Um, one area where I see this a lot in terms of uh, folks who come to the study of history as as Christians with a Christian background versus just totally secular historians who are also looking at religious history, um, often the, the Christians, because of their familiarity with the Bible, are able to, for example, spot biblical allusions in texts. So often, you know, early modern uh, literature of all kinds is saturated with biblical references. They're not always designated as such. But if you have a familiarity with scripture, you will spot when, you know, First John is being referenced, even if the guy doesn't actually indicate it. So there's all sorts of ways, I think, in which um, my being a Christian, my being a Baptist, uh, my being uh Protestant, all of the things that make me me as opposed to somebody else do affect um, what I'm doing and uh, everything from the selection of topics to how I go about it. Awesome. Now, I'm also curious about the formation of being a good historian. So when it comes to just being a good historian, having the right sort of dispositions uh, to notice things that historians should notice and telling the story in a way that a historian should tell the story. Are there particular habits or practices or, I don't know, I mean, modes of thinking? I mean, just these sort of like virtues and ways to, to, to generate the proper disposition. Are the things that a historian in training should be really focusing on and doing on a regular basis to ensure they're becoming a virtuous historian? Yeah, how can we be formed into uh, good historians? What 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 can we um, do? Well, uh, you know, to to me, there, I mean, there's a couple things we might say. Um, one thing that strikes me is how do you become a good historian? Um, you read good historians, and that sounds sort of obvious. But what I've found is it, it's it's not. You identify historians whose work you enjoy, who you think are doing it right, who are doing it well, uh, but then it's taking a second step. Yes, you're reading them, but you're reading them with intentionality, and you're asking, um, what is it that makes what they're doing so effective? You know, how are they putting this together? How are they uh, organizing their material? I think one of the biggest challenges is is the organization of of one's material. You know, how do you you're reading all these things, you're taking all these notes, it's all swirling around your head. How do you take that into something uh, that has unity and order and progress, such that it can be communicated from your mind to somebody else's mind? Um, so, identifying historians you enjoy, reading them, thinking actively about what they are, uh, what is it that makes them so good. Um, other things that we would um, want to highlight, I think another one for me that has uh, I've been reminded of again and again is uh, make sure that you are, um, you know, I think good historians are eager to get to the primary sources. Um, I think it's easy to get 
so caught up in the secondary literature, the history writing, that we sometimes feel like, okay, I've got to master a, a thousand and one articles before I actually dig into the primary sources themselves. Uh, and yeah, to some extent, you you do need to, um, you know, familiarize yourself with the secondary literature. But really, you know, history is is about the interpretation of the primary sources. And uh, I've noticed in myself, and I think others might feel this way too. Sometimes it's easy to get intimidated and, and sort of think, okay, I, I, I got to read this book and this book and that article. And, and only then may I approach uh, the sources themselves when, when actually I think that can be a little paralyzing. And sometimes the sooner you dig in to the primary sources, the sooner you come to a place of, of confidence where you can say, yeah, actually, uh, I know that uh, this claim or that claim is, is correct or is off because I've read it myself. Before we uh, shift gears to specific areas of Baptist research, Jake, do you have anything you'd like to ask Dr. Bingham or any input right now? One question that I would like to ask Dr. Bingham, as we think about specifically from a Baptist context, how important do you feel it is that the work of being a Baptist historian, we must not lose sight of that relationship with the church? And specifically, how does this serve the local church. So what would be some some guidance that even maybe some cautions we should have of not losing sight of the relationship, our work in church history, but specifically in Baptist history, how that's to help the people that are in the pews in local churches? Yeah, thanks, Jake. I mean, that's, that's a really important issue, isn't it? Because, um, you know, ultimately, if we're approaching uh, historical work or any work, we want to do it to the glory of God. Uh, and, you know, I think that, um, I think there is a sense in which we can have kind of two boxes in, in our heads in, in, you know, people talk about sort of academic work and, and more popular level work. I don't think those two categories are, are pernicious or, or unhelpful. Um, I think actually, um, while maybe not quite so directly, I think the people of God are served well by faithful Christian historians who are able to write and publish at um, a sort of high level and, and publish in mainstream academic sources. Um, why is that? Well, I think when you are a Christian yourself, we, we talked about subjectivity does affect the way you interpret and read the sources. Hopefully it's not distorting the way you read the sources, but... Um, like I, I know in, in my stuff, um, I, I think I have a more sympathetic reading sometimes of what um, ministers and theologians are up to than maybe my secular counterparts. Uh, again, hopefully I'm not distorting what they're saying. Hopefully I'm not reading stuff in. Hopefully I'm not making excuses for them. But I do think when I read, um, I, I have, I have a, a, a sympathy that can maybe help me interpret them in a fair and more charitable light than some of my secular counterparts. And I've seen that with other uh, historians who, who I happen to know because I know them personally. I know that they are Christians. I know that they are evangelical Christians. And you see that in their uh, published work, even if there's nothing in the, you know, Oxford University Press book or um, journal article that would sort of betray their own commitment to the church, um, I, I think there is value uh, in that for the church indirectly. Um, I think it also is helpful because it shows uh, people in the pew that, you know what, um, there are faithful 
Christian historians who are trying to do uh, work at the highest level and that there's no incompatibility between Christian commitment and, you know, sort of high level academic output. So I think all that serves the church indirectly. Uh, But then, of course, there's the other side. How can we serve the church directly with the work that we do? And again, I think there's all sorts of of, um, outlets for that. And I think it's, to to me, one of the the most satisfying things about trying to communicate something to church history uh, to the local church is is letting people know um, that actually, you know, your little corner of the Christian world might be small, it might be unimpressive, um, but you are actually a part of a very uh, great cloud of witnesses. And I think as secular culture becomes increasingly hostile towards Christianity, at least in the West, I think it's all the more important that we are uh, sort of plugging people in to this bigger story because, you know, frankly, um, it can be very discouraging. I know here in the in the UK where I'm at now, uh, churches are much smaller than they are in the United States. The UK is sort of further down the secularization road than than the United States, and um, you know it, it's 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 hard. It's tough going. Um, but if you can say to people, hey, actually, yeah, there's 25 of us here tonight on the evening service, um, but we're, we're a part of a much bigger story. That, I think that's a great encouragement to the people of God. And I think church history helps to, um, to show that and to communicate that to people. Yeah, that's a good word. Now, Dr. Bingham, I want to shift gears a little bit and focus a little bit more specifically on areas of Baptist research that need more attention. So we have quite a few listeners who I would categorize as Baptist history nerds. So we got two of them on here right now and Garrett and Jake, but there's a lot of guys who listen who are also in that bucket, I would say. And I say that in a good way. This is a good thing to be a Baptist history nerd. But for those who are not yet done with their PhD or they're considering doing a PhD or something like that, or maybe they're even in their MDiv studies and they want to do more research in these areas. In your opinion, what areas are the most under-researched that you would say, somebody really needs to focus on this area? It hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves, and it would really serve the church and even the academy if someone decided to jump in and start researching and writing on this area. Yeah. um, You know, I think the... In, in in one sense, I think there's there's many many aspects that are uh, understudied. I think that when you start to look, so just thinking about early modern um, British religious history, when you look at the way that um, Baptist churches and um, ministers and theologians are are treated in kind of the mainstream secular literature, they're often lumped in with other religious radicals and heterodox actors. And um, so I think almost anywhere you you turn, whether you're looking at the way in which associations uh, functioned in actual practice, whether you're looking at um, the the meaning of um, confessional statements, you know, you get to the Second London Baptist Confession, and they're talking about how, oh yeah, well, we had this other one, but um, copies are few these days, and so we'll do another one. You know, well, what is that all about? What what happened to those copies? How were they? I mean, there's lots of nitty-gritty questions almost everywhere you turn that I think would admit uh, further study. 
um, just because this is really understudied and and um, mainstream historians are, are far less interested in Baptists than they are in um, Presbyterians and Congregationalists and uh, established church uh, Episcopalians. Um, but beyond sort of specific areas, I, I would put in a push for, uh, in general, and it's, this goes back a bit to what was saying a minute ago about the need for, I, I, I think, faithful Christian historians who are um, publishing at the highest levels in, in terms of uh, historical journals and that kind of thing. I, I think we need um, history that takes theology seriously, but that keeps its sort of eye on history as such and as a discipline. Um, wh- what do I mean? I, I think a lot of us as evangelicals, we gravitate towards uh, historical theology, which is fine and great and needed, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. However, um, we also, I think, have a need for um, history that's not necessarily historical theology per se, but it's sort of history that takes theology seriously. So as opposed to, say, you know, the Christology of Joe Blow, um, let's think about Joe Blow, the minister, and the social context and the cultural context in which he operated. And let's do a uh, historical interpretation of how his church was functioning in the local community, but let's do it in a way that takes the theology seriously. Often it's it feels like you get, um, you know, Christian historians, evangelical historians who are really interested in the theology, but they're less interested in the history, and they kind of they read the history insofar as it helps them get to the theology that they're really interested in. Or you find secular mainstream historians who are really interested in the, in the broader historical picture, and they only pay attention to the theology insofar as they have to because early modern people were v- very interested in religious things. And so it's there. Um, but what, what I think is really helpful is, um, again, people who take theology seriously uh, but take history seriously and really integrate the two. Um, for me, I got a great model of that with my, my PhD supervisor, Crawford Gribben, whose work on uh, John Owen and um, other aspects of early modern British religion are, are very well known. And I think he just did that really, really well. Took theology seriously, but um, embedded it within uh, a broader sort of historical contextual concern. I've got a question about specific figures in the 17th and 18th century um, as far as Baptists. When you were doing your um, doctoral work, were there any names that you kept coming across that you thought, while there needs to be more work done, we, we have the names that we're familiar with from that era, you know, the Keeches and Kiffin, and then 18th century we have Gill, that more work has been done on those guys. But were there, are there any figures that you think have been particularly neglected when it comes to Ph.D.-level work? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting because there there are big names that that come up again and again, um, and there you know there are people who come up um, sort of as Baptist exemplars like the folks you mentioned. There's somebody like a John Bunyan who is Baptistic, but most of the interest you know he he generates tremendous scholarly interest from mainstream historians, but um, the fact that he's Baptistic is sort of 
you know, by the by, they're interested in his literary output and that kind of thing. So you do see people coming at this stuff from different angles. Um, one figure that the the figure that I was probably most engaged by um, was Henry Jesse, who uh, pastored the um, became the the third pastor of the the first independent London church, uh, which um, doesn't start out Baptistic but becomes Baptistic along the way. And he was someone who um, I, I just found him to be a very interesting figure. He uh, he was he was picked. He's on the on the cover of Orthodox Radicals. It's his picture that got uh, put on the front. And um, one of the things that just captivates me about him is that I think he really uh, defies some of the um, easy kind of stereotypes of of Baptists in the 17th century. He was someone who was Baptistic. He was convinced of that position. He, uh, you know, there's no ambiguity in his mind that infants should not be baptized. But he was very ironic uh, uh, about that. And he was, he was very, um, you know, little c Catholic in his approach to this matter. He, uh, he wrote in the 1650s, and he wrote about, um, disagreements amongst um, amongst uh, folks. And he explicitly said, you know, uh, I, he wasn't comfortable with people who said that Peter Baptists uh, denied baptism. He said, well, they don't deny baptism. They think they are baptized. They think they're, do- you know, they, they, they affirm baptism, but they, they see it differently. And again, this was a guy, he had no doubt in his mind that Peter baptism was not uh, the way to go. He wasn't, he wasn't wishy-washy on that, but he he just took this really interesting moderating position, and uh, I, I find him fascinating. And I think there's more work to be done on him. He he wrote interesting things. He was interested, like many people in that period, in eschatology, and he he put some material out there. Um, I think there's a lot of work yet to be done on him in particular. So, Doctor Bingham, thinking about areas of research, one thing that seems more and more challenging for us in America, but probably even just in the Western world, is how do we understand the relationship of the church and the state, and how are we to function in the culture? What what would you say, especially as you're looking at the 17th century, because it's a period of turmoil everywhere, what are some things that you think that early Baptistic leaders got right and that they didn't get right, that we can learn from and maybe even dig into as far as how did they see their place in the culture, in a nation where they were a very distinct minority group that didn't have a lot of rights for the most part? Yeah, well, I think you put your your finger on, I mean, if we want to talk about things that are worthy of um, more study and, and more thought, more research in terms of early modern history and early modern Baptistic history. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that the um, the erosion of the sort of Constantinian establishment church ideal, the erosion of that ideal that takes place during the 17th century, uh, is is to me like the that that is one of, if not the most significant religious development that that is happening during this period, just in terms of. Uh, in this post-Reformation period, you know, arguably the Reformation itself, I think, kind of um, starts to unleash the the, the seeds 
of this, but the 17th century in a British context, in a North American context, you know, you start the century in a place where uh, there's one church in theory, obviously there are people doing things underground, but in theory, there's one church for all the English people. Uh, it's comprehensive. If you don't attend, you are breaking the law. And by the end of the 17th century, um, there are a multiplicity of religious options that are legally recognized by the state. Yes, they are disadvantaged, and the established church still has a priority and uh, many, many advantages. But um, by the end of the 17th century, you have uh, religious toleration and uh, the legal recognition of alternatives to the established church. And and that transition is is just absolutely huge. And, um, you know, Baptistic um, folks, congregational folks during the 17th century are at the forefront of kind of um, pushing for that and pushing for that from a New Testament perspective and saying, hey, the New Testament doesn't recognize uh, this idea of a national church. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, while at the time that was seen as very controversial, uh, today, I don't think that's very controversial. And amongst Christians of various stripes, uh, certainly Protestants and evangelicals, I don't think it's controversial uh, to identify um, the church in a way that is very similar to the way that 17th century Congregationalists and Baptists were doing. And in fact, I think one of the reasons why sometimes we don't maybe um, feel the weight of what's happening and the, and the sort of tectonic shifts that are taking place during that time is is because we've all just sort of inherited a post-Constantinian world where, uh, of course, religion is about voluntary association of local bodies who may or may not join together with other bodies to form denominations, but they're not compulsory. You know, we, we take that for granted. So I think digging into that, thinking about that more deeply is, is really, really, um, really important. Um, and I think there's lots of fruitful avenues there. I think the 1650s in England, where you have um, you have no no king, the interregnum, you have Cromwell in charge, and you know that I think is an understudied time. And there's a lot of I think interesting things that are happening there. Um, you know, you have a you have a guy very high, you have people very high in the government during that time who are Baptistic, and that fact is sort of remarkable to me. And when you read mainstream histories of the period, they might mention it. They might, you know, there's this fellow Henry Lawrence, for example, very high up in the government during this time who's, who is Baptistic. And it might be mentioned, oh yeah, he, he had these views on this or whatever. And then they just sort of go on, not, not sort of recognizing that uh, this represents a really major, um, major kind of unprecedented uh, shift in the way in which, um, you know, a, a major Western, um, uh, state is relating to the church. I think there's lots there. Yeah, I totally agree. So, Garrett, Jake, do you have any additional questions or comments that you'd like to ask Dr. Bingham? Just on the on the note of seeing research needs out there and becoming a historian, um, are there some some books that you would recommend about kind of how to be a historian, how to write about history? Uh, I know there are some different approaches. I know a lot of the current conversation about what in the world is and is going on with evangelicalism. A lot of the ways people approach that question has to do with 
what kind of history they're really talking about. What what do they have in mind? Um, so cultural history is different from kind of a history of ideas, and there's a lot of different kinds of factors, different things that you might choose to select and deselect for various kinds of reasons. Are there some some books about historiography and books about um, I guess how to go about the historian's task that would be that you would recommend that have been helpful for you. And do do you have a particular kind of way you see yourself as a historian? Like you said, you're a relig- you study religious history. Is that a technical term or just kind of a general term? Yeah, um, I don't. Yeah, I I I, I guess I, when I use that term, I sort of just mean it as it would sound to to normal to normal folks. Uh, religious history, in terms of what has influenced me and and where do I see it? What's been helpful? Uh, I, I've been really helped. You know, I mean, there's lots of great books out there about history and thinking about uh, the historian's task. But in terms of which ones have been most influential, I was really helped by reading um, the the Cambridge historian Quentin Skinner has um a it's a three three volume thing visions of politics but the first volume is um regarding method and he talks about his approach to um the historian's task and particularly he thinks about intellectual history history of ideas which you know i think broadly conceived we could we could see uh, at least a lot of aspects of religious history is sort of fitting within that paradigm historical theology. You know, if we can step back from it is, is sort of a kind of intellectual history, isn't it? And how ideas impact other ideas and are shifted and that kind of thing. And he, he's really helpful on that. There's a phrase that's associated with him. Uh, he uses it in, in that volume where he talks about uh, the goal is seeing things their way and uh, meaning we need to get into uh, and take seriously the 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 context in which uh, ideas were formulated he's very concerned with uh, not projecting our own concepts and ideas back onto uh, past actors and uh, in that connection another really good book and in, in some ways even more helpful for the religious historian is a collection of essays which takes that phrase from Skinner as its title it's called seeing things their way um, the subtitle is, is about intellectual history and, um, and religion or something like that, but seeing things their way, it's edited, uh, by, uh, John Coffey, Alistair Chapman, and Brad Gregory, who are three excellent, uh, religious historians. And the, it's a collection of essays where they, they're trying, inspired by some of the methodological insights of Quentin Skinner, they're trying to take that discussion and apply it to, um, to uh, religious history in particular. And, uh, you know, Quentin Skinner was interested in politics and political history and that kind of thing. Uh, wasn't necessarily interested in religious ideas, but these historians are, and these essays are really, really helpful. And as um, probably more than any other sort of methodology book, that one has been helpful for me for thinking about these things. Uh, one other that I'd throw in that is a little off the track and just more fun and interesting is... Um, Robert Caro uh, has a book called, uh, I think it's called Working, something like that. And um, he is, uh, Robert Caro is, what do you call him, a, a popular historian? I'm, I'm not sure where he would be situated. He, he doesn't, he's not writing in a university context, but he's, he's well known for his multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson. 
and he wrote his first big book was a was a look at um, Robert Moses in New York City uh, called The Power Broker. And actually, The Power Broker about Robert Moses, a city planner in New York, was a, is actually one of the, the greatest books I've ever read. The most fascinating book. It, it, it's tremendous. And um, Robert Caro is a, a really embodies a lot of you know, you asked about the qualities that make an excellent historian. I think he he embodies uh, those qualities in terms of he brings a, a creativity and an energy to the task, um, thinking really hard about how, not just what to say, but how to say it, how to shape your ideas. And in this book, Working, he kind of talks about his own way of approaching his work and his, uh, you know, gets into the nitty gritty, like what does he, you know, how does he schedule his day and manage his time? And great book, a, a, a great, uh, a great historian, a great guy. And uh, I'd chip in a vote for that one. Cool. So I've got a pretty practical question here. So imagine for a second that you are a prospective PhD student, you're finishing a master's degree, and you're considering where you should go. You want to do Baptist history for sure, but you're not quite sure where to go. What kind of recommendation would you give to this prospective student? Where should they go? Who should they study with? What should they be on the lookout for or considering as they discern where they would like to study? Yeah, well, I think really, um, you know, where one goes to study is going to be highly dependent on uh, what one hopes to do when they're done studying. And and where does this degree that you're pursuing fit into your broader aims and ambitions? Um, so, and, and on that score, I, I think, you know, there's, there's specific places one could talk about, but the broad distinction to me would be, do you want to, um, do you want to go study in a secular research university or do you want to study in a, uh, a Christian institution, a, a seminary or something like that? And I think both of those are going to have advantages and disadvantages. And so if one is kind of asking oneself, you know, what to do, um, again, I'd, I'd say, well, you know, what do you hope to do afterwards? If, if you um, are you know, thinking you might want to apply for a position in a secular institution, then obviously going to a secular research university is is going to be, um, you know, if not an absolute prerequisite, you know, it's, I think it's going to really, um, the, the way the job market is so hyper-competitive, I think it they're looking for reasons to, to probably not hire people. And, you know, again, if if um not saying it's fair or right or good but um if you're hoping to work at a secular university you probably need to go to a place like that uh if you're not interested in that though uh then obviously other opportunities could be really great fits and uh you could have you know Jake you were talking earlier about you know how does one's scholarship serve the church and you know if if you're interest is serving the church in a, in a real direct sense, uh, then I think working and studying and researching in a Christian context is going to help you do that and is going to serve you. I mean, so I, I was at a secular research university for my PhD, and what I found was that, um, you know, you were kind of socialized there in an environment that values 
certain things. And even though you might in your own head value other things, when you're working every day with uh, other students and you're talking to professors that you respect and are uh, wanting to, you know, kind of impress, um, you know, and they all value other things, you know, you're going to get pulled in that direction. So they have their own set of priorities and um, serving the local church is not one of them. Um, so I think a lot about, a lot of where you go is about kind of the socialization aspect. Uh, you're going to be spending a lot of time with people. And if you're trying to row in a different direction, then, um, you know, that's going to be a little bit harder. Not saying it can't be done. Um, during my time as a PhD student, I, I tried to be very uh, active in local church, tried to be active in doing pulpit supply and um, being engaged with Christians and, and for Christians and tried to keep myself grounded in that way. Um, so it's not impossible, but that's an extra challenge. Um, then the final consideration I'd, I'd pitch in, in, in term, beyond just the institution, is, is just, of course, to be thinking about um, who you want to study with, which, you know, at the PhD level, your supervisor is, um, make, makes a big difference. So um, part of the reason that I ended up doing my PhD at Queen's University in Belfast was uh, because I was wanting to work with Crawford Gribben, who I mentioned already, who, um, whose work I admired and, and respected, uh, who had uh, an interest in the areas that I was interested in. And, and that was a great fit and a, a real help. Well, yeah, that's really great advice. So, Dr. Bingham, thanks for joining us to talk about all this. I think this has been super helpful. I imagine a lot of our listeners have really, really enjoyed your uh, helpful comments here to kind of guide us into becoming better historians and better Baptist historians as well. But not just historians in general, better Christians. And I think that's one of the things that you do so well is that you have that pastoral sensitivity, like I mentioned, but you also have the academic rigor that goes behind it. So it's not either or, it's both and. So we really love that. We appreciate that. And we want to promote that. So if you guys are listening and you don't know Dr. Bingham, again, I'm going to link to his resources, read his stuff. I think it's fabulous. It's fantastic. It encapsulates everything that you want. So yes, it's full of charity. Yes, it's full of curiosity, but it has this critical thinking rigor to it, as well as a cheerful confessionalism. So Dr. Bingham's work is just fabulous. I'll link to several of it, as I said you got to check those things out because he's really bridging that gap between the pastoral and the academic in the way that we just want to promote constantly. So, Dr. Bingham, thanks for this. This has been awesome. And for all of you who have been listening, we thank you again for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we will talk to you guys soon.